Do you mind if I record the interview? Well, I thought that was what you were going to do, so of course not. Hello, hello, hello. August here from the LGBTQ History Project and the host of the Queer Core Podcast. You may remember us from season one where we featured Don Kilhefner, the most dangerous gay activist alive in America, Rumi Misabu, a crazy coquette, Reverend Troy Perry, the patron saint of prayers and protest, Jane County, trans punk rock superstar, and the list just like the beat goes on. But guess what, baby? We are back and better than ever. Just because we weren't on the airwaves doesn't mean we weren't cooking. A lot has changed over here at the LGBTQ History Project, and rather than bore you with all of the exciting updates, let's just get back into it. And who do we have first on our 2K23 season revamp? Martha Shelley, the co-founder of the Gay Liberation Front and the mother of gay liberation. We over here at the LGBTQ History Project believe that without Martha Shelley, LGBTQ civil rights would not have been realized in the capacity that they are today. She's been involved in the movement since she became aware of what is actually happening. This episode is all about someone who said no, 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 and wrote a new rule book along the way. She's a pioneer, and her story serves as a roadmap. This first audio clip is from a Zoom webinar I did with Martha Shelley and other members of the Gay Liberation Front in New York City and Los Angeles. I've been, you know, marching against the Vietnam War since 1963, and, you know, was involved in stuff like that. The other thing is that we did have a march prior to that 1970 Christopher Street Liberation Day march, and that was one that I organized. It was 400 people, and it happened exactly one month after Stonewall. Now let's go back into the archive. Here is Martha from an interview I did with her on my handy-dandy 10-year-old audio recorder. I hit record, and she was on speakerphone. Assimilation, you may ask. I was... At age 23, I joined the Daughters of Boletus. And it was an assimilationist group. And I joined because I wanted to meet other women like myself. And I was useless in the bars. I couldn't connect with people. I didn't dress right. When I got to Daughters of Boletus, I started to connect with other lesbians because I can talk. That's you know, the one talent that I do have, the ability to talk in public, to write, and so on. Uh, and I was able to connect with women that way. You can't do that bars. Can't, you know, it's noisy and so on. I had also been politicized, so I was not an assimilationist. I had been, since since I was, what, 19, marching against the war in Vietnam, I had been very moved by the civil rights movement, and I had a post within my job before Gay Liberation Front. I had a big poster of Martin Luther King over my desk. So I was quite radical. I wasn't looking at the uh, Daughters of Belinus as, as a way of assimilating. It was, you know, what the group was about. But the minute we had the Stonewall riot, it was a chance to say, yes, we can form a gay organization. 
that's as radical as the Black Panthers or any other non-assimilationist group. We wanted to overthrow the current system, not to assimilate into it. People like me who were in Daughters of Belinus or Mattachine were kind of restless. You know, we we were looking for a chance like this. Martha joined the Daughters of Belitis in November of 1967. At that time, homosexuality was illegal and psychopathological. Out gays were fired from their jobs and lost their apartments. If you were found out, your life could very well be ruined. Martha, however, was a firebrand. I had, you know, one lousy secretarial job after another, and I always figured I could get another one. The Daughters of Belitis were a homophile organization formed in San Francisco in 1955 by Phyllis Lyon and Del Martin. It was a social group that started as an alternative gathering space for lesbians outside of bars, because gay bars were always subject to raids and police harassment. And what exactly is a homophile organization? We are talking about the 1950s. The whole concept of radicalism had not entered popular culture. Homophiles were assimilist. Assimilation is the arch enemy of all forms of alternative. Let's become invisible because we are just like you, despite the fact that we have sex with people who are our own sex. Now look, I will always bow in the direction of the brave leaders of the homophile organizations. They opened doors for many people like Martha. They were brave and now they're gone. Assimilation, however, always clashes with liberation. I was sort of bored with um, the Daughters of Belitis. Um, we would have these meetings and there would be a lesbian couple from New Jersey who would show up and tell us how to make our lesbian marriage work. As if all of us, all we wanted was a little house in the suburbs with a white picket fence. There was a woman who was a psychologist who came to tell us that we weren't crazy. Martha was a radical at heart. That's why she was the public face for the Daughters of Belitis in New York. She wanted to make waves. She didn't want to just assimilate and stay quiet. Don't judge LGBTQ people by the sex they have. They exist for a reason. Anyway, I had been asked to take a couple of women who wanted to form a Daughters of the Weedish chapter on a tour of Greenwich Village. And we were passing by this bunch of people. It was a Saturday night, June 28, 1969. We're passing by these young people who are throwing things at cops. And I thought, oh, well, you know, another anti-war riot <laughs> because I'd been in a number of them and wasn't about to take my tourist friends, you know, into that. So I walked on by and I had no idea that the place we were passing was called the Stonewall Inn. Monday morning, I learned what it was. And I immediately called Jean Powers, who was running Daughters of Belitis, and I said, we got to have a protest march. Well, she was in the closet because of her computer job. And uh, she said, call Dick Leitch, the head of Mattachine Society. And uh, if they agree, we'll sponsor it together. So I called him. He said, pass 
come to a big meeting. It was Thursday night after the Stonewall riots. When she showed up at the meeting, there were about 400 men. Madeline Cervantes, the one woman member of the Mattachine Society, the male homophile organization, and Martha. She proposed a march and everyone jumped at the idea. Hands were raised all around. Well, a bunch of us met the following Saturday, which again, one week after the Stonewall, and the idea was to plan the march. In our little planning committee, we were all you know, half drunk on beer. It was a hot July afternoon. And somebody said, Gay Liberation Front. That's it, that's it, we're the Gay Liberation Front. And that's what we became. The Gay Liberation Front moved differently than the homophile organizations that came before them. While they deserve respect and recognition, the homophiles were gay assimilists. They wanted a piece of the pie without causing any trouble. The Gay Liberation Front said, screw that, let's destroy the bakery. What it did do was it made the assimilation actually happen because Mattachine and Daughters of Bolinas and the other little groups that existed at the time were not able to get what they wanted. Um, you know, they were essentially pleading for their rights with white America, saying, we're just like anybody else, please accept us. We just have this one little difference. And the analogy they used was, it was sort of like being left-handed instead of right-handed. And they didn't get anywhere. People weren't paying attention to them. Uh, the conditions remain the same for gay people. When we chucked that, when we said the heck with it, and made our alliances with the radical groups, when we crashed the American Psychiatric Association, when we marched together as a group in anti-war marches, uh, when we went to the Black Panthers Convention in Philadelphia, the People's Revolutionary Constitutional Convention and so on, we changed the minds of, of people on the left. And then that changing all of that, sorry, changing all of those people spread out. The first gay pride march, as we now call it, was actually called Christopher Street Liberation Day. It took place on June 28th, 1970. We will talk more about the first Pride March in our next episode, but something most people don't know about is that there was actually a march organized nearly a year before then. Thank you, Martha Shelley and your fellow liberationist. The first march took place on Sunday, July 27th, one month after the riots. And I've been pretty scared before then. I was thinking of Dr. King's assassination and how many people hated us. But by the time I arrived in Washington Square Park, the fear was gone. I don't know why. Marty Robinson, who had been in uh, Mattachine and I, led um, the 400 people around Greenwich Village. And then we held a rally in Sheridan Square Park, which is across the street from the Stonewall. Later, some of the marchers said this was the first time they had ever been out in public, out in the sunshine. Well, once we'd all gathered for the rally, Marty got up on the drinking fountain and made a short speech. I jumped up next and spoke. I have no idea what we said, except at the end, when I looked at the crowd and said, 
We're not here to start another riot. Let's all go home peacefully. It's over for today, but this is just the beginning. We will be back. These are the people who you work with. Instead of hiding in the closet, we're saying, we, you know, the saying, we're here, we're queer, get used to it. And that was what made the difference to the extent that gay people are accepted in the United States now. The Gay Liberation Front was intersectionality all in itself. Black, white, men, women, what we now call trans, nearly anyone could and would be represented. They started their meetings by saying sisters and brothers. Just think about that. To understand oppression, we need to understand its many causes and our oppressor's net goal. The Gay Liberation Front recognized women as double oppressed. They understood the need to work with groups like the Black Panthers and the Young Lords. They organized with both. We reached out to the Panthers. We reached out to the Young Lords, which was the Puerto Rican Liberation Group in New York. We went to the National Organization for Women, which was terrified of being called lesbians. You know, they were terrified of being considered a bunch of man-hating dykes. And we changed their policy. We went to one of their conferences and took it over. And also there were people around the country who were hearing about what we were doing and they formed GLF chapters all over the country. We were aware of what was going on in Vietnam. We were aware of the civil rights movement. We'd grown up with that. And we couldn't not think about the connectivity of all of the struggles in this country and around the world. Martha and her fellow revolutionaries were coming in hot and they were pissed. In May of 1970, Martha and other radical lesbians in their 1970 Women Identified Women Manifesto wrote, What is a lesbian? A lesbian is the rage of all women condensed to the point of explosion. I want to preface this a little bit. None of us are um, perfect human beings. Those of us who were in gay liberation front were angry. We had a lot to be angry about because of the way we've been treated. Um, and I think young people tend, and I certainly was, tend to be a lot, lot more angry. I'm still pretty angry about stuff. I get <laughs> I read newspapers and I get furious. There's this anger that comes out in what I have heard called horizontal hostility, taking it out against each other instead of against our enemies or you know people who have a lot of power in this system. The NYC Gay Liberation Front consistently performed what they called actions, takedowns, protests, revolutionary moments and expressions. Sometimes they took over the streets and sometimes they held signs that said, I am your worst fear. I am your best fantasy. In 1972, I was asked to do a lesbian radio program and uh, did that for two years on WBAI in New York. And that could be picked up around the country. We didn't die because we didn't have the internet. We did have radio, we had our newspapers, and we first come to several, you could make a phone call. Look, folks, gays were finally making moves. 
The Gay Liberation Front famously protested the Village Voice newspaper, the Catholic Church, mafia-controlled bars, etc., etc. The threat never went away. There was blood, billy clubs, and a lot of arrests. Phones were tapped. And let's just bring this back to you. We must remember homosexuality was still considered psychopathological. I had an experience with what you might call an agent provocateur. In addition to work on, on Come Out, I also worked on Rat newspaper when it was taken over by women. And different groups of women, you know, I was, I guess, the gay person, the people representing different, very radical uh, factions within the women's movement. And there were a couple of women from the Weather Underground. Well, I made it a point not to get close to them because I thought if I knew anything about them, I don't didn't want to have any information that anybody could worm out of me. Also, I wasn't into blowing up things at that point. Still am not really. But one day, this guy invited me to his apartment to talk about radical action. And he showed me this rifle that he had. And he wanted to do something about putting poison in people's cigarettes, like so that when they smoked, they would die, like cyanide or something like that. The first thing that came into my mind was, agent, agent, I'm out of here. <laughs> and I was out of here. Also, I found out that one of my neighbors came to me and said that the FBI had been there asking questions about me. And she, she was a Ukrainian refugee and said, I didn't tell them nothing. And I believed her because she knew better than to tell the secret police where she came from. And she wasn't going to. And she also didn't know anything much about me, except that I commiserated with her upon the death of her cat. But, yeah, the cops were, you know, clearly looking at us keeping an eye on us. And of course there was that one agent and there were other agents too who got involved with women on the rat newspaper group who ended up doing prison time. When I reflect on the lives of these pioneers like Martha Shelley, I think they are invincible. They seem so strong, so determined, and so unwavering from who they were at their cores over 50 years ago. It's impossible for them to shake their roots. On my mother's side, yes, my mother was an illegal immigrant. My father's family immigrated in 1910 from Russia, and uh, then there, was, there wasn't an immigration quota, and my father was born in Brooklyn. My mother's family, went to, uh, when they left, it was 1921, they left Poland, and they went to Havana, because there was an immigration quota, and they lived in great poverty in Havana. And when my mother was 16, she got on a boat and went to Florida, made her way to New York, I don't know how, went to work in a factory. She was an undocumented immigrant, and um, eventually she met my father, and got married, and then she was able to become legal. So I'm first generation that way. Those of my mother's relatives who did not get out, who stayed there, didn't survive. But even though the roots are strong, the branches can still shake. Martha and the Gay Liberation Front advanced civil rights at an unprecedented speed. It's hard, but important, to remember that they're still just people. I was afraid, you know, before that first protest march right after Stonewall, 
But then once I was there, I stopped being afraid. And I think one of the things that's motivated me really all my life has been thinking, because my family was first generation refugees from Eastern Europe. I mean, my mother escaped before the Holocaust. And I always thought, what if I had been born in Germany and been German, not Jewish? Would I have had the, if I'd been Jewish, I wouldn't have had much choice, fight or die, fight and die, whatever. But if I'd been German and I had the choice, would I have had the courage to stand up against the regime? And that's motivated me all my life. Can I live up to that? I have come to terms that a lot of my work documenting the lives and legacies of these LGBTQ activists has been for my personal development. Throughout the 3000 recordings I have, it seems like I am looking for myself. A tape of 13 year old me interviewing someone versus now. Not much has changed except my voice is just a little deeper and the fact that many of my interviewees have died. An interviewer asks the questions that they want to know the answers to. I hold on to these pioneers' words and memories and take their lessons with me. I would say that the one bit of advice I could give to young people is, if you're afraid, do the right thing anyway. That first march that I organized with 400 people, I was scared. I was afraid I might get shot. I had been in Harlem when Martin Luther King got killed. And I didn't know, but I did it anyway. And you can, we can win stuff, we can lose stuff. I think about Greta Thunberg and what she's done as a young person. It doesn't mean that you're going to win, but if you try, you might win, you might lose. But for sure, if you don't try, you will lose. And there is your lesson, folks. It's wrapped up in a bow. And this is also a wrap of our first episode of season two, Martha Shelley, the mother of gay liberation. A call out to the world. Do you believe that LGBTQ survival is being impacted by assimilation and horrible politicians? Do you think we can use the knowledge of yesterday to be prepared for tomorrow? We need your help. The LGBTQ History Project's archive spans thousands of recorded phone calls and conversations. We are a low-funded, 100% grassroots 501c3 nonprofit. Are there any patrons out there? Is there anyone who wants a generous tax write-off? Write to me at august at lgbtqhp.org or visit us at lgbtqhp.org slash donate. We can give you producer credits and I'll even send you some never before heard tapes from my archive. Oh yes, Instagram, Instagram, Instagram. We are at the LGBTQ History Project. Oh yes, yes, yes. The Queer Core podcast is hosted by me, August Bernadiku, and features the archival recordings that I have collected since I was 13 years old, over 16 years ago. All of our tech magic is courtesy of David Newtown, our producer. Thanks to Silka Berlin and the Addictions for our fabulous intro song called Silicone Valley. Silka also performed You Don't Own Me in Violent Moments. 
Fun fact, I met Silka when I was 18 years old at a dirty bar in the Mission District in San Francisco. She told me she was the queen of the underground. Also, a shout out and thanks to Blue Dot Sessions for our moody instrumental music and other sounds. We are going to keep the Gay Liberation Front flame alive with our next episode, which features Perry Brass. Besides being in the Gay Liberation Front, he's also an author, poet, and so much, much more. We are talking about a 50-plus year career here. Until next time, peace out. Peace out.